Let me open in a word of prayer before I begin my message. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we thank you and praise you for your goodness to us. We ask that you would help us to understand that in a richer and a deeper way through your word this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. This morning we're going to be in the book of Habakkuk again just a moment. I believe we we had scripture reading from Romans chapter 8, right? No. Okay. Um, let me read Romans chapter 8 real quick. The reason being, we're going to see in just a couple minutes, Habakkuk is going through something in life that is frankly horrible. And what grounds him is the truth that he knows about God. So this morning's message is titled, The Determined Weight of a Grounded Believer. And my prayer this morning is that each of us would have the kind of grounding, the kind of strength, the kind of foundation that Habakkuk has. And Romans 8 gives us a fantastic glimpse of some truths that we need. So before I jump into Habakkuk, let me read that here, okay? So I'm in Romans chapter 8, and I'm going to start in verse 18. Paul, writing Romans, says, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to decay and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness, for we do not know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. How will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword? As it is written, for your sake, we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things, 
We are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Jesus Christ our Lord. This morning I am not preaching out of Romans 8. But Romans 8 is the kind of truth that you and I need to get us through what we we will have to go through before we meet our Lord. Keep in mind this incredible chapter. The reality that our present sufferings are nothing compared to the future glory for those who are in Christ. The reality that the Spirit helps you pray so that if you don't know what to ask the Lord for, God himself is working with you to make the right kinds of prayer. The reality that Jesus intercedes for you and the reality that no matter what you go through, Paul mentions famine, he mentions all kinds of terrible things. And then he says, in all this, not because he's kept us from it, but in all of it, we are more than conquerors. This is the deep truth that you need to know. And this is what I believe we as New Testament believers need to hang on to just like Habakkuk did. So with that as the the background, let's go to Habakkuk. Habakkuk chapter 1. We're going to start in verse 12. And if you don't have a Bible with you today, there's a blue Bible should be in front of you, underneath the seat. There's a little rack there, and you can find this passage on page 662. Page 662. If you want to see it in God's Word, I'd encourage you to turn right there. Before I go through the text verse by verse, which is what I'm going to do in just a minute, I want to say a couple things as a backdrop. A lot of people, particularly, well, a lot of people confuse the gospel of Jesus Christ with the American dream. We as Americans are hardwired to believe that with hard work and perseverance, you will reap success. It might take time, you will face obstacles, but we love a rags-to-riches story. If you guys remember a couple of years ago, Will Smith was in a movie called The Pursuit of Happiness. And it's an inspirational story that's based on something that really happened. His man, he was a single father, he was facing homelessness, and he overcame incredible odds to become a multimillionaire. Today, he is a very successful man. We love stories like that. The danger is, if you take that sort of cultural conviction, that belief that's hardwired into so many of us, and you try to apply that to the spiritual realm, you are setting yourself up for disaster. Because the spiritual world does not work that way. All of us have heard the gospel. I just talked about it as as we baptized Amy and Jay. The, The reality that it's not by works of righteousness, but it's by the free grace of God that we are saved. When we recognize that God, not in my strength, not because of anything I've done, but because of what Jesus has done for me, I can be accepted and forgiven. Salvation is by grace. But even for those of us who know that, We might recognize salvation is by grace, but we still get caught up in the belief that if I do the right things, God is going to bless my family. He's going to bless me. 
And the reality is, one of the most incredible, optimistic chapters in the New Testament that we just read, Romans chapter 8, talks about famine and persecution. And he doesn't say that God's going to spare us from it. He says that we're more than conquerors in it. And so what I want to say this morning is that while in America we love the truth that God helps those who help themselves, the reality is that's not true. The truth of the gospel is all of us are sinners and that God graciously offers us the free gift of salvation and that his long-term goal is not to bless us here and now, but to make us holy, to make us like his son, Jesus Christ. And as he does that, we may experience horrible difficulties and sufferings and pain. Nothing we ever could do will earn God's favor. That's true for salvation. That's true for growing in the Christian life. Growing is by God's grace as well as entering into a relationship with him. And so what I want to suggest this morning is that we as believers need to remember this truth. And I want to read you a hymn that was written by John Newton. I've mentioned John Newton before. You may remember he's the guy that wrote Amazing Grace. He has this incredible testimony. He, he becomes a pastor. And he's, he's about middle age when he becomes a pastor. And has some, some incredible success in ministry. His, his congregations are never that large. But he has a great reputation as being the kind of man that loves people. That will help you if you need help. And he's, he's successful in preaching. And to this day people read his sermons. Because he was, he was a man that understood God's grace. And he was a man that wanted to help other people get that grace. And so we remember him as, as the author of Amazing Grace. This is a hymn that he wrote as he asked God to help him grow as a believer. It's entitled, I Asked the Lord That I Might Grow. And John Newton wrote these words. He said, I asked the Lord that I might grow in faith and love and every grace, might more of his salvation know and seek more earnestly his face. Twas he who taught me thus to pray, and he, I trust, has answered prayer. But it has been in such a way as almost drove me to despair. I hoped that in some favored hour at once he'd answer my request, and by his love's constraining power, subdue my sins and give me rest. Instead of this, he made me feel the hidden evils of my heart, and let the angry powers of hell assault my soul in every part. Yea, more with his own hand he seemed intent to aggravate my woe, crossed all the fair designs I schemed, blasted my gourds, and laid me low. Lord, why is this? I trembled, cried. Wilt thou pursue thy worm to death? Tis in this way, the Lord replied, I answer prayers for grace and faith. These inward trials I employ from self and pride to set thee free and break thy schemes of earthly joy that thou mayst find thy all in me. Newton says I wanted to grow. And instead of God giving me constant victory, 
He put me to a place where I was forced to trust in him. There's a verse that has a funny line in it that I just read. It says that God intent aggravated my woe and crossed all the fair designs I schemed, all the good plans that I had. Lord, I, I'm going to go here and do this. And God says, no, that's not where you're going to go and that's not what you're going to do. And that line after that, he says, blasted my gourds. What on earth is he talking about there? He wrote this while he was looking at Jonah. And if you look at the end of Jonah, God blesses this little plant to give Jonah shade. Jonah's have this little pity party, and he loves this plant. He doesn't care about the people of Nineveh, but he loves this plant, and God kills his plant. And Jonah gets really mad and says, Lord, why did you let this plant die? I can't believe it. That's what what John Newton is saying. Lord, all my little comforts that I love, that I thought you blessed me with, you took them away. Why would you do that? And God says, in Newton's words, it's in this way, the Lord replied, that I answer prayers for grace and faith. The goal of the Christian life is not to build yourself up by work. You and I, we can't make ourselves holy by Christian effort after we're saved. That's not how it works. Our goal is to fellowship with the living God. And that means sometimes our hopes get dashed. But if we turn to God in those moments, we end up with a deeper and a sweeter fellowship. And that fellowship can give you joy in a hospital bed. It can carry you through the loss of a child. It has carried some of you through the loss of a child. It can give you hope through divorce. This morning, I want to show you from Habakkuk how to seek God even where you're in that time of testing, when you're in that time of trial. What do you do? And my prayer for this whole series is that God will equip us as a church to suffer with joy. We need to expect that God will work his sovereign will in history, and our part is not to speak a smooth ride to the pearly gates, but to serve the Lord faithfully through whatever he calls us. And in past messages in Habakkuk, I've talked about how our loving Heavenly Father allows evil to exist for a time. Last week, I talked about how our good God uses evil within his sovereign will, and those are truths that we need to know and remember But this week, I want to answer the question, what do you do when you're in the middle of it? You may know the truth, but how do you use that to get you through? And this is what I hope to see in Habakkuk. Habakkuk, like John Newton, prays a prayer that he believes he's learned directly from God. We saw that two weeks ago when we looked at Habakkuk chapter 1, verses 1 through 4, and we saw Habakkuk distressed at the evil that he saw around him in Judah among God's people. And he said, God, why are you allowing this to happen? Then we see God reply to him and say, good news, I'm sending the Babylonians to judge Judah. It's the last thing that Habakkuk expected, and it causes him more distress. And so this week, Habakkuk is there. He doesn't understand How God can use someone more evil and more wicked than the people of Judah. It seems unjust, and he can't believe it. And so what does he do? We're going to start out in verse 12, and we're going to see. Habakkuk says, 
praying back to God after he's heard, Are you not from everlasting, O Lord my God, my Holy One? We shall not die. O Lord, you have ordained them as a judgment, and you, O Rock, have established them for reproof. You who are of purer eyes than to see evil and cannot look at wrong, why do you idly look at traitors and are silent when the wicked swallows up the man more righteous than he? You make mankind like the fish of the sea, like crawling things that have no ruler. In all of this, Habakkuk is addressing God and talking directly to him. And in the first half of verse 12, he starts out with some bedrock foundational truths that help him figure out what he's going to do in the midst of this. And that's where I want to start. So my outline today is the basis of hope, God's character. The basis of hope, God's character. If you look at just those first three lines in, in verse 12, Habakkuk says, Are you not from everlasting, O Lord, my God, my Holy One? We shall not die. Habakkuk does two things here. He remembers God's character, and he recognizes God's sovereignty. He remembers God's character, and he recognizes God's sovereignty. And this is what I want to urge you to do today when you're in distress. Remember God's character, recognize God's sovereignty. Passages like Romans 8 will help you do that. Bookmark it in your Bible if you have to. Be ready to use it. Memorize parts of it. Know God's character and know God is working his sovereign will. He's in control. Habakkuk has heard God's first reply that God is sending the Babylonians to punish the wickedness in Judah. And he can scarcely believe that God would use a people as wicked as the Babylonians. And I'll say a little bit more about that in just a couple of minutes because Habakkuk talks about it as part of his prayer to God. But notice first that Habakkuk prays. And he not only prays, but he begins by addressing God with specific names and specific attributes. Habakkuk first asks, are you not from everlasting? That's the first thing he says. He remembers that God is eternal. He has no beginning and he has no end. And this is important because it means that God has existed before everything we see and nothing, nothing has ever threatened him. He created it all. How could it? Remembering God's eternity gives us hope. We have a very limited perspective. But when we recognize that God has no beginning and no end, there's someone greater than us that we can call on when we're in distress. When you're in trouble, you want to call out to someone who's stronger than you. Someone who's not facing the same trial. Someone on firm ground who can pull us up out of the quicksand. That's the hope that we have because God is eternal. And I'll remind you that not only do we have the hope that God is eternal, we also have the encouragement that Jesus Christ has been tempted in every way like we are, but without sin. So not only is he the sovereign God on firm ground able to help us, he understands our distress. These are the kinds of truths that you need to remember, that you need to keep in mind. And notice also, not only does Habakkuk say, are you not from everlasting? He says, O Lord, my God. 
There are two things to notice there. If you'll look in your Bible, every translation does this. Lord is in all capital letters. That's a reverential way of using God's holy revealed name. When God reveals himself to Moses, Moses says, what if people ask me who you are? What's your name? God says, I am who I am. And that name, Yahweh, was so holy that even in Scripture, scribes wouldn't write it down. And so in our English Bibles today, every time that name exists, they follow that same practice and they use the word Lord, but they put it in all capitals. So you know we're talking about the God who says, I am who I am. Why does that matter? Why is that significant? It means that God doesn't need anything. When God reveals himself to Moses, you may remember, there's the image of a burning bush, but the Bible says that the bush was not consumed. God is a holy fire, but he doesn't need energy. There's no source of energy that feeds him. He is from everlasting. He has no beginning. He has no end. And I am who I am means God has everything he needs. He lacks absolutely nothing. It means that he's not desperate. When he wants to accomplish his will, he knows how he's going to do it, and he does it. From an almost silly human perspective, from a limited perspective, I ran shifts at Starbucks. I was the guy that if I, someone called in, I had to find somebody else. And usually, you kind of think through who, who would be the best, who's hardworking, who sees a job and does it without being told. Those are the first people you want to call. But usually those people are actually already working. So as you get down the list, you start saying, all right, I need somebody that's got two hands, and that's about it. I'm looking for someone with two hands. Anyone will fill this position. Anyone is better than no one. And so you start calling people that you know there are all kinds of problems with their work ethic. They're lazy. You don't want to work with them. But the reality is you need someone, so you'll call anyone. God is never in that position. When Habakkuk prays and says, Lord, you need to punish the wicked for the sake of your name, it's not as though God looked around and said, all right, the guys with the white cowboy hats are on vacation, so I need to call these other people who are actually wicked, and I wish I didn't need to, but we're stuck with the Babylonians. Sorry, Habakkuk. That's not what it's like. Habakkuk says, this is, I am who I am. This is the God who has every resource that he could ever need. And he has chosen to do this. So Habakkuk confirms two things. God is from everlasting and God is I am who I am, who lacks absolutely nothing. And don't miss the fact that he calls him my God. Again, this is coming from a place of faith and commitment. That though Habakkuk doesn't understand what's happening or why it's happening, he is committed to trusting the Lord, and he calls him my God. And he affirms God's holiness. If you notice, the last thing he says in this short little section here is, my holy one, that although God has chosen to do this, his moral character is not compromised. He is a good 
loving God. Like we just sang about, you're a good, good father. It's who you are. The Bible says that God is not tempted by evil, not even tempted by it. And so out of those truths, Habakkuk makes this almost surprising statement. He says, we shall not die. Realize that when he says that, it's very recent history that the northern kingdom of Israel has been hauled off to captivity in Assyria and that they never come back. Habakkuk has actually seen his own kinsmen destroyed. And so when he says, we shall not die, it's because he has remembered who God is. He has remembered that God himself has promised two things. He promised, based on his name and his character, that he would bless the world through Abraham's seed. You can read about that if you want to. Genesis 12, Genesis 15. And he makes that promise on the basis of his name and his character. So when Habakkuk reviews God's name and God's character and then says, we shall not die, he is saying that because their existence is bound up with God's promise and he knows that God's promise will not fail because he made it on the basis of his own name. And on top of that, he promises to David that someone from David's family will always, eternally, be on the throne. They're in a rough spot in Judah. Their king is not exactly what you would hope for in a ruler. He's a morally compromised, evil, wicked man. And yet in the midst of that time, knowing that judgment is coming, Habakkuk says in faith, we shall not die. Why? Because God made these promises based on his own character. God's from everlasting God doesn't need anything. He always accomplishes his will. And so Habakkuk says, we shall not die. He takes strong hope and encouragement there. And that type of rich teaching is part of what we need if we're going to weather the storms that God calls us through. But this is only part. This is the first part. Because the same character and nature that gives Habakkuk hope is also part of what's causing him distress here. And so if you look at the second half of this passage today, the cause for alarm, the violent Chaldeans' idolatrous prosperity. The cause for alarm, the violent Chaldeans' idolatrous prosperity. You can see that in verses 15 through 17. Let's read it together. Habakkuk speaking about the Babylonians says, he brings all of them up with a hook. He drags them out with his net. He gathers them in his dragnet, so he rejoices and is glad. Therefore, he sacrifices to his net and makes offerings to his dragnet, for by them he lives in luxury, and his food is rich. Is he then to keep on emptying his net and mercilessly killing nations forever? When Habakkuk hears the Babylonians are coming, The destruction of Samaria by the Assyrians and the loss of the northern tribes is fresh in his memory. And he says, these people that are more violent and in some ways worse than the Assyrians are coming for us. He's already made the confident assertion, we shall not die. And yet he's caught with the struggle that the holy God 
who is pure. And we read a few minutes ago, you are of purer eyes than to see evil and cannot look at wrong. Why do you idly look at traitors and are silent when the wicked swallows up the man more righteous than he? It's very much like the prayer that he prayed in the beginning, except now it's intensified. Now it's worse. Not only is God seemingly inactive in Judah, the solution that he's sending seems worse than the original reason that Habakkuk was praying. And so the same confidence that he has in God's character is at the same time held in tension with the reality that this good God is doing something that seems so incredibly wrong, and he can't understand it. This week, I don't want to solve that tension for us. I don't want to say, here's the quick, easy answer, because that's not what our lives are like. Like Job, very often, as we experience trials and suffering, we don't always see what's happening in heaven, and we don't always see the big picture at all that God's accomplishing. And so we're left with some tension. Habakkuk is looking at something that I think is beyond even what you and I experience. And I want to bring this out in a little bit of detail today. In particular, it almost seems strange that he's likening this to fish. He says, you made, speaking to God, you made mankind like the fish of the sea, like crawling things that have no ruler. And then he talks about Babylon bringing all of them up with a hook. The idea is fish are completely helpless. They're not organized with a clear leader. And that because of that, they are victims to fishermen. And I was actually horrified to learn that this is actually not just poetic license, but that the Babylonians, through their own art, it's, it's one thing. When you look at archaeology, if you hear about an enemy, and we do the same thing with our own history today, we exaggerate the flaws in our enemies and we minimize our own flaws. In archaeology, the same is true. So if you hear something about a people coming from another country, you question whether or not maybe they exaggerated or fudged it a little bit. But the Babylonians, in their own artwork, show people being marched with hooks in each of their lips tied together like I would put bluegill on a stringer. And realize Judah to Babylon is a 900-mile march. It's actually closer to walk from Holly, Michigan to Atlanta, Georgia. 900 miles strung along like a bluegill on a line. And God says, this is how I'm going to punish Judah. And so Habakkuk, knowing of the reputation of these people, knowing that they're coming, that God has says, I am doing this, is alarmed. On top of their cruelty, they also worship their own strength. The Babylonians are convinced that they're able to do this because they're a strong people. And I want to parenthetically, I started this message by mentioning the American dream and the idea that we can build ourselves up if you just try and you persevere. That's not exactly unlike what the Babylonians thought. And so, as a parenthesis in this message, I'd like to say, we need to have humility before God. 
We need to recognize that any good thing that we have comes from him and not try and take credit through our own cleverness or our own perseverance, but say, thank you, Lord, that you have given this to me. There's a lesson to be learned from the Babylonians here, too. But the reality is Habakkuk is horrified not only by their cruelty, but by their idolatry, that they don't give credit to God for what they've done in their success, but that they take all the credit for themselves. Habakkuk can't figure it out. So I want to ask this morning, what do we do in our lives when we can't figure out what God's doing? And I want to suggest that Habakkuk actually also gives us the example for that. You can read about it in the first verse of chapter 2. Habakkuk says, I will stand at my watch post and station myself on the tower and look out to see what he will say to me and what I will answer concerning my complaint. So the third point in the outline this morning is, is the determination of faith to wait. The determination of faith to wait. Notice Habakkuk does two things in this verse. First is he's standing, and he expects an answer. Habakkuk is standing because he imagines himself as a sentry atop a tower. And remember, Jerusalem is about to be under siege. A sentry standing on top of a tower is looking for critical information that could save the lives of the people seeking shelter in the city. This is a job that demands vigilance. He's not sitting down. He's not taking a nap. He is committed to look, to watch, to wait actively. And he expects God to answer. When he prays, he knows that he's talking to his heavenly father. And he expects to hear from him. He doesn't know how long it's going to be. But he's confident that God will answer. And I want to suggest today that when you don't know what God's doing, this is what you do. You wait. You wait and you pray. The fault, I believe, of many Christians today is that they remain uneducated in doctrine and they are impatient in prayer. If we pray for something, we don't pray long. And because sometimes it's difficult to study and sometimes it's confusing, we don't do it at all. And I say that today because I believe it actually should give us hope and encouragement that there's a rich source of confidence that any one of us has access to at any time. I wrote this past week my annual report for this year. And after I wrote it, I went back to read some other past annual reports to get a sense of if I did it right or not. I didn't do too bad. But it also helped to have a sense of history of where the church came. And one of those reports stood out. It was from 1997. It was one of Pastor Jack's last annual reports. In 1997, Pastor Jack mentioned the second chapter of the book of Judges and the danger of losing an entire generation of people. The second chapter of Judges says the people who knew the Lord died and their kids did not know the Lord. And Pastor Jack warned of the fact that that could happen to any generation. And as I look around today, from my age, I am in the minority. 
majority of people my age in America do not believe in the Lord and they do not know anything about him. And I want to say in a, in a tragic and unfortunate way, not just our church, but the church in America is facing this tragedy of the next generation does not know the Lord. And I say this not to be discouraging, but to remind you of our mission, to remind you of where we're at and what our job is. We are to be salt and light in a dark hour. And we are to take the message, the good news, the hope of Jesus Christ to the next generation. So how do we do that? How do we, how do we have hope and optimism? I want to point you back to what Habakkuk did. He grounded himself in the truth and he prayed expectantly. So how do you do that? How will you do that tomorrow morning and the next day and the next day? How will we as a church commit to grounding ourselves in the truth and to praying expectantly? I want to give you two examples of the first, grounding yourself in the truth. One of them comes from, you guys all know how much I've benefited from the ministry of John Piper. One of the things he did when he was wrestling with who Jesus is, is he read through the four Gospels with an ink pen, and he wrote T-O, which stood for tough, next time, next to, every time Jesus said something tough or difficult to someone. If you've read through the Gospels, you know there are times when Jesus is very blunt and very bold and even harsh. And so every time Jesus did something like that, he took his ink pen, and he wrote T-O, which stood for tough. But if you've read the Gospels, you also know that Jesus is incredibly tender. He's gracious with sinners. He loves children. And so every time, as he was reading through the four Gospels, he saw Jesus do something tender, he took an ink pen and he wrote the words, T-E, tender. And after he was through, he went through and looked at the balance. And there has never been a man in the world who had both of those qualities so perfectly. Who, in the words of Scripture, said a a bruised reed he will not break, but at the same time could look without flinching and tell someone they were in sin. Jesus Christ perfectly embodied both of those. And I mention that partly because it's one of the reasons why I admire Jesus so much, but partly because... Piper learned that by studying the New Testament, not just reading it, but with a specific plan, with an ink pen in hand, and said, I want to know my Savior better. I know there are things, you know, sometimes we get distressed when we see Jesus being stern with people, and we forget those times when he's tender. And so he said, I don't want to be unbalanced. I want to know my Lord. And so he just went through, basically made a check mark, and tallied them both. I want to urge you to read the scriptures like that. Don't just read them and forget what you read. Read them to meet your Lord and Savior. And I want to urge you to read them actively. I am am doing something somewhat similar. This year, I'm reading through the Old Testament. I'm about maybe two-thirds of the way through Genesis right now. And in the Old Testament, by by my nature, when I read through the scriptures... It doesn't take, this has always been true of me, even when I was a kid. My parents could give me a look, and I would just wilt. Dad's smiling because he knows it's true. I I just, 
I am the kind of, I take correction right to heart. It's pretty easy to crush my little spirit. And that, in many ways, is a good thing. It means that I'll learn from criticism. But when I read through the Bible, when I read about God's correction, it makes me somewhat fearful. And so I need to learn even more how much my God loves me. And so reading through the Old Testament, I'm taking special note of every time I see God be loving. And I was shocked just this past week to realize, even in the middle of one of the stories that people like to say, God's so judgmental, even in the middle of that, he demonstrates his incredible love. So I was reading about how God does judge the sin of Sodom and Gomorrah. It's a, it's a frightening story. And yet in the middle of that, God does not let a single righteous person be punished. And he goes in and he rescues Lot. Lot is not by any accounts a good man. If you read through Lot's story, no one will make him a model hero. You don't want to be like him. And yet, he knows the Lord, and that's what matters, and the Lord rescues him. And when he goes to rescue him, Lot says, I don't know that I really want to leave right now. Is it actually that urgent? And God takes him by the hand and drags him out of the city before he pours out his judgment on it. That's love. That's love that says, I am rescuing you from the danger that you don't even realize is there. And that's the love that God has for me, and that's the love that God has for you, and that's love that's in the middle of a story we don't even want to read because we feel like God is judgmental. I don't want to miss that time when God expresses his love. And so as I'm reading through the Old Testament, that's what I'm looking for. I want to see it every time because I need it in my heart. I need to recognize how much God loves me. And I want to encourage you, whether you do something like Piper did, whether you do something like what I'm doing, read the scriptures with the expectation that you will know the Lord better because you're reading them. Seek him because he is there. If you seek him, you will find him. And I want to stress this morning as I close, there's a way to learn about doctrine and theology that feeds your head but not your heart. That's not what I'm talking about this morning. I don't. I don't want to be in a hospital bed someday and be able to pass an exam on theology, but in despair because I think I'm dying. I want to be the kind of guy that when I'm on my way out, people are scratching their heads because they can't figure out why I have peace and why I have joy. And if you're going to have that, you have to connect what you know about God with knowing him personally. And to do that, you have to pray expectantly. You have to take what you learn in the scriptures and you have to talk to the Lord about it. And so I want to encourage you this morning, praying expectantly does not mean you're going to get an answer quickly. You may not feel encouraged when you get up off your knees. We may need to be like Habakkuk and wait, and that wait can sometimes take years. But I want to encourage you that if you seek the Lord, you will find him. So seek him in his word and seek him in prayer. Recognize that you come into his presence, not because you're a good person and deserve it, but because Jesus died for you. Recognize that you have the Holy Spirit. We read Romans 8 before I started this message. Recognize that the Holy Spirit is interceding for you as you pray. And recognize that your good, good father hears everything you say. As I was, as I was finishing up this message, I thought... 
that actually includes preaching. I'm, I'm preaching about the Lord, and the Lord is listening to me. And I'm hoping that he's saying amen. But I mean that in the sense that recognize it's easy to feel like when you pray, you're just talking to the ceiling. Fight that. Know that God hears you. And recognize that if you ground yourself in his word and you seek his presence, you will grow and you will have the rich faith that will give you joy no matter what happens. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we we live in a time when many people do not know you. My own generation is hardened in unbelief. And I pray that we as a church would be faithfully seeking you and seeking ways to reach them, Lord. We have so many opportunities here. Help us to, to realize what they are and to be faithful and diligent. First in knowing you but also in sharing you. Lord, we confess that as believers, we are often distracted by unimportant things and we neglect your word in prayer. We neglect doctrine that would sustain us and we neglect prayer that would draw us closer to you. We ask for your forgiveness. And Father, we praise you that as the scripture says, even when we are faithless, you remain faithful and our hope is entirely on you. We pray that you would bless us with patient perseverance. We pray that you would fill us with a strong desire to know you so that we are eager to read, to listen, and to learn. And we ask that you would fill us again with your spirit. May we be faithful to wait on you and to trust in you through all that you ordain. In Jesus' name, amen. This morning, I'm actually going to go ahead and give the benediction because it's been a little bit of a long service. And so this morning, I'd like to leave you with a a verse that, as I was thinking of a good benediction, I don't want to just repeat the passage that I always leave. I I hope that I'm able to to bring something that fits well with the message. And actually, uh, Dave, the verse that you read for Jay is the, the couple of verses that I want to close with today from Colossians. Colossians chapter 1, and I'm going to read verse 9 as a prayer. May you be filled with the knowledge of God's will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so that you walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to Him, bearing fruit in every good work, and increasing in the knowledge of God. Go in peace.